Hello, this is Dennis Eckmeyer, and I'm the host of Science for Societal Progress. During this season, once every four weeks, I pick one of the 13 most popular episodes from the first two years and post the original interview. These extended editions contain a couple of parts that didn't make it into the final cut and give an insight into the underlying conversation. Supporters on Patreon have immediate access to these versions, by the way. If you are one of them, thank you very much. If not, think about it. www.patreon.com slash progress This time I present to you episode number 11, in which I spoke with Hélène Pidon about genetically modified crops and the European Union. I'm Hélène Pinon. I'm a French postdoc in a German institute in crop science. I'm working on virus resistance of uh, barley. So I'm trying to resistant genes uh, in, in the wild plants uh, in order to have plants uh, naturally resisting the disease without pesticides or whatever, but with genes. Let's go all the way back to the beginnings, let's say the really original breeding for better traits, how does that work and what does it do to the genes? We are now at the beginning of agriculture. Basically, at first, it was just taking the plant that was the best looking and just sowing the seeds for the next generation. So it was kind of empirical at the beginning and most of the plants have evolved that way, uh, driven by humans choosing the, the plant they want for the next generation. And the plant that we are now eating are not at all the plants that were there at the beginning, that were there before humans. And they will not survive in the wild because they are not adapted. They are adapted to agriculture and not to nature. So basically, at first, it was really like, oh, this plant seems better. I will sow it, this one for next year and eat the rest. And then with the Green Revolution, beginning of, I think, we can even start around the 18th century, even before the Green Revolution. Just before the Green Revolution, what happens to genes if you do this artificial selection? Basically, when you know about natural selection, the survival of the fetus, let's say, the plant that is the best adapted to its environment will have offspring that will better survive and so their gene will continue in the generation. And with agriculture, it's not driven by adaptation to the environment. It's driven by the adaptation of what human wants. So basically, even by just choosing the parents that were the best for us, we were already applying selection on genes. We were already selecting traits, selecting even genes and mutation that were naturally occurring and then these mutations were the one that survived now in the plants. But they were not there at the beginning. They were all they appear and, and just in one plant that would not have offspring and disappear because it was not adapted. But we made this plant adapted and we made this gene, this mutation survive to the next generation and now be all over our fields because yeah, as I said, the plants that we have now are, are, were not even there, were species that didn't exist uh, before humans. So, but, but what happens to the genes? Is that just one gene that changes when you do the selection process? It's, it's everywhere in the genome. It's, it's not even quantifiable. It's like uh, even when you look at wheat, 
with as in fact three genomes. That means that in fact at some point the genetic material was doubled and then tripled. Like there is for one like in humans are deployed and uh which is exactly that means that we have for one chromosome there is a pair and for them there is three pairs. So this was also something that was driven by humans because with these three pairs of chromosome, so these three copies of gene everywhere, um, selection can be much faster and we have stuff that are much better with better yield because everything is related to yield, how many, how many plants you can retrieve for, for your conception. But we don't really have control over what we're doing, right? Yeah, definitely. It just... It just, oh, this one looks good, I will take this one. And not even knowing what's happening below that. Just, yeah, just selecting on, on what's happening and not even knowing what's what's happening in the genome, what was the mutation, and not questioning ourselves. Is this mutation or is it good or is it affecting the natural environment? Because just by making agriculture, we change completely the environment. And it's already completely synthetic compared to before agriculture. And that was up to the, we're just talking about the time up to the 1800s, right? Here, I think we are still in uh, antiquity or even before. <laughs> oh, so uh, you, were, you were talking about the Green Revolution. Was it, what is that? Around um, the 20th century, there was a big change in the way agriculture was done. So we moved from farmers doing all the work of selecting their crops and uh, trying to get the best yield possible with putting cow poop on their crops and stuff <laughs> like that uh, to something much more industrialized because there were less and less farmers and more and more fields and a big need of food and so more and more things that were previously done by the farmers were moved to companies because there was something that farmers were asking for. They were asking for expertise outside, giving this work to someone else. So the big change was adding pesticides and to the crops that allow to have better yield, but also having companies that select plants that make the plant breeding. And at this point, science enter into breeding, uh, not just, oh, this one is looking good, so it will be for next year. But, oh, this one is looking good, and if I cross it with this one, it's looking also good. And there we are still at something very phenotypic, very based on the, on the traits and what we can see of the plants. If I'm crossing those two, I have a better yield, I have a better resistance, so I would choose this one. But still not really knowing what's happening on the gene part. And there was also, oh, we know that DNA exists, and we know that mutation are all the things that can create new traits, new resistance, better heal. How can we increase the number of genes that are interesting for us, the number of mutations interesting for us? And so at this point, we have some stuff that are pretty random, like putting a nuclear source in the middle of a field, just waiting for mutation to appear in plants. And yeah, some will be looking good, and so we will take them. Wait, say that again. They they were putting radioactive material into the field yeah. to see what happens. A radioactive oh, wow. source in the middle of a field. And I'm not talking I'm talking about Europe. And not so long ago. So so when was that? That was nineteen hundred and 
I think 1970s. It was still ongoing, even maybe later. 1970s. That that was already the time where people started to become environmentally conscious, right? Yeah, but I mean, at some point, we are just changing the DNA. But we were not knowing at all what we were doing. And there is also a technique that enters, so chemical mutagens too, like EMS, so it's one of the most used chemical mutagens. Basically, you take a plant and you put it directly in the, it's a liquid, basically. You put it into the liquid, and then there will be a lot of mutation in the seeds at the next generation, and you will select from that, because you make new mutation. You induce a lot of mutation, and then some traits may be better afterwards, like you can have gained some resistance, you can have gained a bit of more yield or a bit of a, of a tolerance to salinity, or I don't know which trait. But when you put it into the liquid, you don't know what you will get, and you don't even know what's happening in the genome. Let me sum this up for now. So we first we have the, the breeding process where we select plants that also have mutations that's where the new traits come from that we select for right so we yeah. need, see a new plant and it has a nice new trait and we select for that it's also picking plants from outside like more wild plants and then seeing that they have something interesting and crossing them with the plant that you are cultivating the problem is the more we go in the selection process the more the wild plant is having a lot of things you don't want in a field. And getting rid of that is very difficult uh, because when you make a cross, you have 50-50 and then you can recross and then you have 25-75% of, so still 25% of Y. And while you are trying to getting rid of all the negative traits, you can also lose the positive one and it takes a long time. So trying to, to correct when you do breeding and there are unwanted traits that got into your plant somehow, you want to get rid of it. So you take wild original plants and then cross those. And then you try to start over with a, with a selection process until you have all the traits that you wanted. Yeah, that's it. At the beginning, it was just still based on traits. So you have a plant which is wild and has a lot of things you don't want, usually it's very low yield, it's very bad looking, but uh, there's something like a resistance to a disease or better um, resistance to drought, for example. And so then this plant, you will, you will try to cross it with your elite material, the one which is already in the field. And at this moment, you have something which is bad looking and it's still bad looking. It's a bit less bad looking than the previous one, but it's bad looking and you just retrieve the one that the offspring that are still res resistant for example the one that have the trait that you want and then cross it again with some elite material and so each time that you cross it with an elite material you get rid of a bit of the wild part that you don't want and try to select each time for the for the one that are the most elite but still with the trait that was interesting you uh, in the wild at, in the beginning and so each time you have a generation, and a generation is a year, so you need at least 10 years to make a new variety. And breeders are doing, doing it less and less because even if you manage to get rid of a lot of things, you are still like 10 years back in the, in, in the past because 
you have still some undesirable traits that come with your genes. So it's it's a very long process to just keep just what you need, which can be just one mutation or just one gene. So you have the original breeding process and you get all these traits and you select for them and then you need to correct something that didn't go well or you want a new trait in there uh, by crossing the wild, another wild plant in there. And then this takes a long time. And then the next step basically was to increase the rate of mutation to use these agents like radioactivity uh, x-rays, I think. And and this uh, liquids that are that cause mutations, right? That make changes in the in the genome. So they quicken that, but you still have to do this whole selecting for the right traits and and trying to correct when there when the trait that you want comes together with the trait that you didn't want, right? Yeah. So basically, just to explain a bit why mutate. Metagenesis occurs, it's because it's so difficult to take a trait from a, a wild plant. It's much more easy to create it by mutation, finally. Even if mutation is random, it's still kind of easier because you make this mutation appear in, directly into your elite material. And it's not coming with not wanted traits. It's coming directly. But you are playing a bit with the dice, like, will it appear or not? But the idea was always to try to go over this, this fact that when you cross with a wild, you have a lot of things that are coming that you don't want. And also the fact that more and more, as I was saying, the wild plants don't pre-exist anymore or it's another species. And sometimes it's very difficult just to make the cross. Just to make the cross, then it's, it's sterile or stuff like that. And so you need to save the embryo uh, by some also techniques that are in vitro culture. And so, so basically that's why mutagenesis is so used. It's because finally the trait you want will appear in the plant, in the background of the plant that you want. But it's by, by chance. So it can also not appear. Or you can just miss the one plant that was the when you want. And now we go to the next step. We we have these these plants that are uh, where we can take the the or the plant that we are using anyways, and then we can mutate it and select for traits that we want. But now we're doing something different. What is that? Now with the knowledge about the genome, with new techniques, we can directly go and see what gene is responsible for what traits. So. It can be used in several ways. Either it's easier to follow from generation to generation if your trait is still there, but also you can directly put the mutation of the gene you want in the plant, knowing exactly what you're doing compared to doing it completely random, hoping that it will occur, not really knowing what's happening. It's also allowing you, so for example, I'm working right now in a, in a wide relative of barley. And we are looking for resistance to this virus. And this resistance exists in this wide variety. But breeders have difficulties to put these genes into the cultivated species just by crossing, because crossing is so hard. So what they do, what we, they can do now, is when we have the gene, when we know the mutation that occurred, that we can repro reproduce with uh, gene editing or or a transformation of the plant, uh, the gene or just the mutation that we want precisely, 
just where we want. And without cross, we can have this gene, which is already existing in the natural, in, in the wild, into our crop. And we can also imagine having potato gene into wheat. It's also something that already exists, but in another species that we will never be able to cross. But just like that, increasing our possibilities to have, so I'm working in gene disease, uh, in disease resistance. So I'm, uh, I'm, and it's something for which breeding is quite looking, uh, looking a lot also. So basically we can introduce this kind of disease resistance. And if we have disease resistance already at the genetic level in the plant, that means that the plant is able to defend itself against, against the disease. Just because it's incompatible with the disease, for example, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a vaccine. Let's say, uh, even if vaccine is also quite uh, uh, quite controversial, um, <laughs> so maybe it's not the, the right term. In, in the wrong circles, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the the plant will be able to resist by itself without applying any pesticide. So that's basically the idea to be able to have the plant defend itself to. As a plant that is the most adapted to higher temperature, more drought, uh, being able to grow even in drought, and to have some yield, at least, maybe not the same as if there was not, no drought, but at least some. Yeah, this, this kind of introducing new traits into the plant, just by changing a few bases in the DNA, precisely where we know it will be useful. So what you're saying is that actually the, the actual change that you're inducing using gene editing methods like CRISPR are actually much smaller than what you would do when you would use the previously used more traditional methods? Yeah, definitely, because we are just introducing with CRISPR, we can even change just one base, meaning just one letter. Just to give you a, an idea, the genome of wheat is... 10 power 10 letters. It's it's huge. We are just changing one letter. Whereas when we are putting a mutagenesis, we are applying some mutagenesis, it will be tens, hundreds of mutations occurring in the same time, where we don't know where, basically. 10 to the power of 10? Yeah, 10 to the power of 10. So That's 10 billion, is that right? Yeah, something like that. I'm very bad with numbers. It's a 10 and then 9 zeros, right? Yeah, a 10, 10 zeros. No, yeah, 10 and 9. Total of 10 zeros, yeah. yeah. And 9 zeros is a billion. Yeah. Okay, so it's 10 billion. Um, yeah, 7 billion. So, so you only t uh, change 1 in 10 billion instead of hundreds in 10 billion. Both doesn't seem like a lot, to be honest. <laughs> It's, it will really depend on the kind of metagenesis you, you can have, but it can be it can be more. But it's a single event. It's like doing it one time. And there's also natural occurring mutation along the process. Uh, in which we consider that there is 100 mutation every billion base curve in one generation. And the thing is, if you consider just a one hectare field, then you can have 20 billion mutations in just one field. It's more than the total size of the genome. So there is a spot of mutation naturally occurring, but in the one hectare field, there will be already a lot of mutation, even if we do nothing. 
we are just choosing the one we want, putting it here, and we can't check every field for just the mutation we want. It's not possible. Some, some are not even um, distinguishable by high, by eyes, or, um, yeah, so, or just, yeah, they are there for being harvested, so we don't check everything. But basically, the chance that it's already naturally occurring is quite high. Okay. So we already have a lot of high mutation rate naturally, and then we use gene editing, which is low, but it's very targeted. So, I mean, you do it to have an effect. Yeah. So you put the, you, you change the genes that count, that make a difference, and it's targeted. Now I heard that um, CRISPR, so, with, and we're talking today on this uh, podcast mostly because there was the European Union has a new law on, on CRISPR in, uh, specifically, uh, which is a gene editing method. How well do we know what happens when we use CRISPR? Because there was this study that everybody's talking about that CRISPR actually is not as precise and specific as we thought it to be in the beginning, but, but how precise is it really? How many unintended changes do we make and how does that compare to earlier methods, to, to the mutagenic methods? It's still quite controversial, this study. It seemed that really the, off, so what, the, the change uh, that we don't mean to do with CRISPR are called off-target effects. It seems that it's really, really, really low, like maybe sometimes it will happen once in the genome. The problem is when we do what we call largely a genetically modified plant, so it's uh, CRISPR or the older methods of transformation, you always go through an in vitro phase. So this in vitro phase is very stressful for the plant. And what is that? What what is what is in vitro in this case? What does that mean in this case? To introduce a mutation in a plant, you usually do it in what we call cells that are indifferentiated tissue of plant that we induce. And then we make it in differentiate again, and so the plant reappears. We make these uh, cells that we change change into a plant again. Let's say uh, it's not very clear. So, do, do you do you work basically with with a plant embryo? Is it like the kernel that you're working with? It's a bit it, it's a bit more more complicated in a way, more easy in another way. That. For animals, a lot of um, the indifferentiated state of the cell is a very short moment. In plants, this, this state is easier to keep. And so what we do is like we are creating a, a sort of big embryo. <laughs> and this is what we are changing. And then this embryo gives a plant. Except that with plants, normally you don't have embryos. so. We are talking now about changing a bit the cycle for this generation. And yeah, this is quite stressful for the plants because, yeah, there's there's a lot of things that are going on um, during this phase and that can induce also some mutation that we don't know where they happen. But it's something much less than what mutagenesis with EMS or something like that will do. But we know that this can induce also mutations. And mostly it seems that 
the thing that was thought to be off target of CRISPR were mostly induced by by this regeneration. So it's not the actual CRISPR method, but uh, the thing that you have to do in order to apply the CRISPR method. Yeah. That is inducing. And is there is there a way? So first of all, you say this is rare. This is a rare event compared to. I must say that here I'm not a total specialist of in vitro culture and things like that. So I may say some stuff that are not 100% true. So just want to, to warn that we are reaching the limit of, of what I know. But it's quite rare. And mostly what's important also to say is that it's done in other process than transformation. It's done in, in a lot of things because... Uh, in the pro in the modern process of plant breeding, even without mutation, uh, without transformation, genetic transformation, that can be editing or other kind of GM plants that are already on the market, you go often through this phase of in vitro culture. So, for example, when you cross two plants that are non-fertile normally to save the embryo, you go through this kind of, of thing. Sometimes when you want to speed up the process because you want your plant to be the most stable possible, so you want them to be the same at both allele of the gene. So gene has two copies normally, so you want the two copies to be similar, so the variety you will have will be stable during the time. Breeders are applying something they call uh, double haploidization, which is basically just copying the genome once, so you have exactly the same thing on the two chromosomes. And this goes also through through in vitro culture. So this kind of stuff is is not only for for what what is called normally GM. It's it's for it's basically everywhere in breeding, and I've been for years. So so this is nothing special for CRISPR um, or gene editing. It's something that people do in in other methods too. That induces these. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now um, we come to the juicy part, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you already talked about uh, genetically modified plants and GMOs, but we just heard that. So usually, when we talk about GMO, the, the anti-GMO people they mean only gene editing, which is the latest of the methods we've been talking oh, about. Is that think, correct? No, I think they also talk about the the earlier method that are still applied also and still useful. So basically But I feel the fight is against the gene editing and not against the all the methods that we've been applying ah, yeah, okay, for yeah. forty years. But not only gene editing, also what I'm calling transformation in general, which is introducing completely a gene into a, into a plant. Which is basically um, currently in the US, for example, you have plants on the market that have been transformed. And this is not made by gene editing. This is made by another, it's another method, uh, which is uh, earlier. CRISPR is really something very, that appears like really became something possible. Uh, and we thought about it for plant breeding like five years ago, maybe. Not so long ago. It's, it's something very new. Uh, but there was already some transformation. So just first, I want to remind exactly what's... So there is this uh, European court that decided that the gene-edited plants should be treated as 
other GMOs, older GMOs. But in their definition of GM, they said uh, that a GM is something that, uh, a way to change a plant that may have not occurred naturally. And basically, after a while, they just say, are excluded of this plants obtained by mutagenesis. Because we have enough knowledge about it, because it's been so long that we are using it, that we know that it's not dangerous. Basically, they are saying that. So they are saying basically that mutagenesis is a form of genetic modification, which is true because each time that you are crossing the plant, you are making a genetic modification. But yeah, they are just saying that this one will be excluded because we, we know there is no harm going from that because every plant you eat have been mutagenized at some point, even in organic farming. Uh, and I think it's basically also the idea there is no, uh, in big crops at least, there is no plants that have not been at some point in their, in their ancestors uh, subject to some kind of mutagenesis, artificial uh, human mutagenesis. So if if you forbid the use, basically you can't use you can't use the crop that have been produced for like the last fifty or sixty years, and you go back to something which is very low producing and susceptible to diseases and stuff that no one wants. Organic farmers don't want it either, because the variety they have are all just are all like that, and if we if we suppress the possibility to use metagenized crops, then, then we go back 60 years in the past, which is a, a very big difference for the crops. Okay, so um, basically what you're saying is we have three, three fundamental ways that we are directly attacking the genome right now. And one is more like a gunshot method where you just induce mutations. Um, one is one where we um, move a gene from a whole gene from one species to another, which oh, is the, the you call it transformation, or is it called transgenesis? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the third one is the the gene editing, and both the last two are actually do less to the genome than the first one, which is the, the one where you use mutagenesis. Yeah. That's is that? Yeah, but, yeah. But the first one is the one that they want to keep. And the, because we can't, the we can't more modern... Right now. <laughs> Come again? Because we can't, uh, we can't get rid of it. It's, it's not possible. We can't go without it. It's a very useful tool. And, and we don't have any right. material really usable that doesn't have this kind of stuff uh, in their ancestry, basically. So yeah, to go back into the three things, so we have this thing where uh, mutagenesis, where you don't know what's happening, you're just trusting that at some point maybe something interesting will appear, and you're changing stuff in the genome without knowing what you are doing, which is authorized and everywhere. And yeah. The second stuff is what's currently the GM on the market, not in Europe, but some other place and the US or basically the rest of the world. So transgenesis, so basically you are taking a gene. So we can take it obviously for another species and that would have been done mostly 
for example, with the BET genes, which are resistance to insects. But you can also imagine just doing it by uh, taking a, a gene in the same species or in a wide variety and just putting it there because it, it's absent in your cultivating plants. And you don't want to cross uh, the wild one with, with the cultivated because of all the change that you don't want that will make in your plants. So yeah, you are not forced to take it from bacteria. You can take it from just a sister plant or from another plant which is already there, but not the same. Like, yeah, the same, taking something from a potato, putting it in wheat. Um, it's still a plant, it's still round. Yeah, so it, it's also something possible. And uh, the idea, yeah, and so gene editing is just changing precisely one or two base, uh, so two letters in the, in the DNA to make a change that you know will occur because you have some other studies, scientific studies that say this gene is doing that and if you change that, it will do that very precisely. The thing is sometimes this means change a gene which is already there, so it does something a bit different. But sometimes the gene you want is not already there. And so sometimes you will want to put a gene from another plant into your plant of interest, just because you know that it will bring just uh, the characteristics you want. Yeah, and it's just transferring this gene, adding it to the genome, which is also something that kind of occur in natural uh, evolution of the plants. You are just saying, I want this one there. It may take normally 10,000 years, maybe reach this kind of stuff naturally, but I will do it in one year. So this is the three things that are currently on the market, or currently possible. Yeah, so to go back to the transgenesis, there was also some, some improvement in the method to transfer a complete gene in the genome. From the beginning where it was with a lot of antibiotic genes that were coming with it because to select, to select the, the embryos you managed to transform, you have also to, to know which one are transformed or not. And so basically you make them grow in an antibiotic uh, substrate and only the one that resists to this anti antibiotic are the ones that are transformed and will come. But now it's kind of much more, much more precise. It was also that before we, we were putting this gene in the genome, but we were not knowing where we put it. So it can occur in the middle of another gene or in a place where it will not be expressed or too much expressed. So it was completely random. And now there is also some methods to be much more precise when we transfer a gene from a species to another. So, but what the, the, the point I was trying to make um, was that basically we have one method that generates a lot of changes that we don't know. And we have two methods that are way more precise and produce way fewer of changes where we don't know what's happening. Is that, is that did I understand that correctly? Yeah. And, and we're keeping the one. And saying, well, it, it worked well for us for half a century, so, and we can't get rid of it because then we needed to get rid of all our crops. But we don't want the other two. Yeah. So, it's 
<laughs> yeah, so so exactly. So so what is happening here? You have a, a more random method that we keep for traditional reasons. That's fine. But if we say there's a traditional method that has a lot of randomness in it and say, well, that is that is safe, then how can we ju justify saying the others that are much less random are not safe? I think also the one where we are directly applying what we want, but more recent, and the general public was more aware of what was going on at this point and was maybe not aware of what was going on before. And they just see what's new and they don't understand everything like everyone doesn't understand everything, it's normal. They become afraid. Politics just want to get re-elected and go to Fred also because they're also not scientists and don't understand everything. And so they say, let's be safe and not authorize this thing before we have enough uh, feedback from it. I said that the first GMs were uh, sold in the US quite a long time ago and we start to have uh, kind of, of uh, good feedbacks on it. And the GM technique in itself never has caused any problem. There's also a thing that are, <laughs> there's something I want to put uh, the emphasis on. So basically there is two major GMs sold right now. One is resistance to glyphosate, to an herbicide, and the other one is Bt crop. So what's a Bt crop? A Bt crop is a crop which has a gene from a bacteria that is in fact an insecticide. And the Bt stands for the name of the bacterium, right? Yeah, yeah. The Bt stands for Bacillium thuringiensis, and this bacteria is in fact used in field directly. So in organic farming, you can take a bit of the bacteria and put the bacteria directly in your field. The difference is that we don't want the plant to do the same thing as the bacteria is doing by itself. We can put the bacteria as it's natural in, a, in an organic field, but having the gene directly in the plant is not seen as correct. Moreover, um, people are saying, yeah, but it's plants that are producing an insecticide uh, in continuous, it's dangerous for the environment. But this insecticide is a protein. So it's basically the same thing we are made of. It's amino acids all together. It's, it's something which is very fast degraded in the, in the nature. And that, that basically is made of the brick of, of livings. It's not a, a synthetic chemical in the way we are seeing other pesticides. We have a lot of proteins over us. When we eat meat, it's to have proteins, to have amino acids for ourselves. So it will grow naturally. It's not something that will remain, remain in the soil or something like that. And moreover, it's a very precise. Like there is in fact not one BT protein, but a lot. And those proteins targeting precisely one or two insects and not the whole insect community, it's just one or two insects. So it's a very low range of action compared to what can be synthesis insecticide, for example, or kind of insecticide that can be used that are more natural, which are, I don't know, and can be, can be used in, in uh, organic crop uh, also. 
So there is a, okay, so that we have this bacterium and it, it produces an insecticide and we can put the same gene into the plant, but if we put it into the plant, that's wrong. And if we leave it in the bacterium and put the bacterium on the field, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the anti-GMO people are saying. And, and you say that these um, proteins are very specific. Yeah. How do we know that? Are there uh, human trials to see if they, uh, if if they are, if they have effects on the human physiology, or and do we know that they're not dangerous to bees and other insects that we need? How do we know that? It's even more difficult right now to release a GM even in countries where it's authorized than to release a, a human drug. There is a lot of tests that are done. On, on insects, on, uh, on humans, on animals. I think there is a lot of studies done. And none of them have proved any uh, adverse effects to, to humans of these Bt proteins. And those Bt proteins are obviously tested around, around a, a wide, large set of, of insects. Or we can say this one is specific to, to this insect or this one. So basically, one idea or so below um, the GMs uh, is that you are, it's a kind of a shortcut. Instead of crossing and crossing for 10, 15 years, you just have your plant in like one or two generations, which is almost nothing. But the thing is, right now, with, even in countries where it's authorized, there is so many tests that you should do that it's taking the same amount of time. It's not a shortcut. It's not really a shortcut. It's just something that you can't do in another way. But that means that there is like eight years of work to test the effect that the plant can have on uh, on humans, on on everything, on the environment. But the thing is, as companies are doing these tests, mostly even if it's checked afterward by some authorities. People are not trusting it because, yeah, it's a company that makes the test. But companies have no interest in selling something that is not good because it will appear at some time and they don't want to sell just for two, three, four years. They want to sell forever. <laughs> so you think the companies have a much more long-term thinking than we usually say, right? So usually we say, oh, yeah, they just want to make money fast. Um yeah. But you say, no, they have a long-term thinking. They, they want something is making probably, noise. Probably longer than our politics. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. The, politicians they, the politicians, so, so if such a study takes eight years, uh, that's two terms, right? And Yeah. Yeah. In Germany, definitely two terms. In the U.S., that would be two terms. Uh, I guess in yeah. most countries, it's four year, a term is four years. Okay. So, yeah, the companies have a longer... Uh, yeah, well, I, I would, okay. I would so, say maybe maybe a bit they have still some some financial interest and the reason also why what we have right now in the market are those two kind of GMs are also because it's so difficult to put a GM on the market now that only companies can do that. Only big companies can do that. And what was particularly interesting for Monsanto and uh, the resistance to glyphosate thing is that Glyphosate at this time was their own product and no one else was uh, able to sell it because it was under patent. So they were selling like a package. The GM was not the thing that was 
giving them so many money, so much money. To think that was that allows them to learn so much money uh, was selling the glyphosate. Really. So basically, they were selling a package, and that was what was interesting for them. But if it was a bit less difficult, then some public institution or what can can also produce some GMs that can be not only for commercial reasons, but also for more practical reasons. Like, does a company have any interest in selling something normally that will stop them, stop farmers from using pesticide? If they are the ones selling the pesticide, no. It's smaller actors. And I'm saying, saying right now that the public sector and the academia is a smaller actor. They are the ones that are able to, to release this kind of genes on the market. The public sector have a higher interest in having genetically modified plants? What I mean is that the public sector would like also to release some GMs. There is this example of the golden rice for Asia, which is still in the pipe for such a long time and I think will soon be released at some point, which at the beginning was owned by companies. But companies saw that they have not so much commercial interest in selling this thing, which has, in fact, it's a, it's a rice which has a, a high vitamin A content and can improve nutrition in uh, poor countries where rice is, is a staple crop. Companies realized that it was so hard to, to manage to get this really high vitamin A content and not very commercially advantageous. And so they let the public sector do it. And right now, I think they are quite close to release um, the golden rice in the market. But yeah, why improve nutrition? It's not always the thing that will bring you the, mo the most money. So it's basically academia, which, which will be interested in this kind of, of reasons, uh, which have not a lot of money, but are interested in nutrition, in uh, health, stuff like that. Because you can also improve this kind of, of traits on the plant. I guess the, the biggest interest would be the governments in those countries where malnutrition is a big issue, right? Those would be the countries that want the golden rice. Or what I heard now was that there's uh, in Kenya, they developed a banana that is resistant to nematodes. I don't know if you heard about that. But only recently they had they, they changed the, the laws there so that they can actually use it. The politicians in those countries are very interested in that because they are seeing directly the interest. And, and I think we have kind of in Europe and uh, also the US, we have kind of this spoil thing. We are, we are like, yeah, we don't want that because anyway, even if we don't, we can, we can have enough food. We can have whatever we want. In uh, what we call thousand countries, like uh, countries that are uh, still uh, with an active development ongoing, the thing is completely different. There's a balance which is completely below the good. There is a big good thing and a, an adverse effect which is not known and there is, in fact, so far, not no known adverse effects despite a lot of tests. And so what they see is that they can improve health with that. They can imp improve also uh, yield and, and uh, have more food. And so 
there's a, a completely different view. But I think as Europeans and Western countries, we should also think about our responsibilities because when we say we don't want that because we, we anyway have enough food, we are also saying to these countries, maybe it's bad and we are still trying to sell it to you. We don't care about it. So And so in those countries, they will say, hey, if Europe don't want that, why are you giving it to us? And well, it's not because we don't need it that we shouldn't push it away. It's just a, it's just a method which has so far, despite a lot of tests, proven no adverse effect. We can do bad things with it. Like for me, the resistance to glyphosate is not a good thing. Uh, it's something that was done also because some farmers were wanting it because it's easier, but it's not something very interesting that we can do. There is so much thing that we can do with GMs, like improving resistance to pests and so you don't spray chemicals, uh, improving resistance to drought, improving resistance to anything, having a higher yield with lower, uh, lower chemicals, either natural chemicals or, or not natural chemicals synthetic ones and so yeah basically with also um the the global warming coming the environment is changing really really fast and breeding has trouble to to cope with that and follow the the reason of, of global warming global warming is right now coming uh, faster than normal breeding can do but with gm we can we can go faster and we can manage to get more environment resilience for our crops and prevent starvation caused by loss of, of yield because there was a big drought this year. Like right now in Germany, there was a, a huge drought and I think they lost 40%, they are 40% less of wheat than the other years just because we had no rains from April, something like that, almost. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's unheard of. I mean, I grew yeah. up I grew up in Germany, and it was always like, yeah, in summer we get rain like once a week. <laughs> I yeah. was I was also from. It a very, was like that last I, year, but this year I'm from a rainy was, part in Germany I'm from too, south but... of France, and I was feeling at home. <laughs> except <laughs> oh, we wow. don't grow. Except we don't grow wheat at home because we don't have enough rain. <laughs> and in fact, it was more rainy uh, in south of France than it was here. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's an abnormal year, but abnormal years are coming to be more normal. The normal stuff. Yeah. And if we have plants that can resist more drought, but also that can resist immersion, because in fact last year was not a normal year either in Germany. It was too wet. So we had a true drought. Too dry, too wet, and it will be a bit like that every year. We will not know anymore what will be the se- what will the season look like. So if the plants are able to resist by themselves to this kind of thing, we can be yeah more sure of what we have in the end. Right. And yeah, and I think it's it's kind of a bad thing to just suppress a tool because. We are afraid of what it's doing because I think it's it's kind of also a dogma, you know, because we are 
when we were not knowing what we were doing. It was like finally just kind of a natural thing that we make faster. But mm -hmm. now that we know what we do, we are basically, I think people are saying that now we are changing stuff in a way we want, so we are playing God, let's say. <laughs> Whereas when we just do something random, it's random. Uh, okay. But but finally, isn't it better to have control on what we do than just make random stuff saying it's not completely our fault if it's happening? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think it's also that that when we know what we do, we can finally do bad stuff, let's say. But there is so many good stuff that can be done with this tool. Because some some plants are already resistant to drought. Just they are not our crops, but they are there. The genes are there. Uh, they are already in the outside. If we just put them in the plant that we eat, so we can eat them every year, then why why should we stop? Yeah. Why shouldn't? So I have your list of things that you wanted to talk about here. And I think the only thing that we didn't go into detail to, and I don't think we have to, would be what is organic farming. I feel like we kind of made a point that it makes no difference because you said at one point that, I mean, you, you can explain it. I'm not sure where I would put it in the podcast later or if I would just narrate it to make things uh, uh, shorten. But basically what you said about about this is first organic farmers are also using crops that were made with mutagenic methods and the the second part was that they that your that the goal is to have plants that don't need additional herbicides and additional uh, pesticides At first I think something that not most people don't know is that organic farming is using pesticides Organic farming is using pesticides that are called natural because they come, they are mineral or, or bacteria or things that you can find in the nature. You don't synthesize them. They are already there. But that doesn't mean they are good. There is a lot of poisonous stuff in the nature. And uh, basically the two most used things are copper and, and uh, sulfur. And they are shown to be very dangerous to the environment, to the, uh, to the uh, soil life, to the insects, but they are used. And every year the European uh, Union is saying, yeah, you can continue using it because if we stop using it, there will be no more organic farming because at some point you need to defend your crop against pests. So there is stuff put on organic farming, which are not better than stuff that was made by humans. Because on conventional farming, we also put pesticides, but these are molecules that were synthesized, uh, that uh, are coming from uh, human chemistry. But there is stuff that, are, that doesn't mean they are more dangerous, basically. Uh, so I think that's the first point uh, about organic farming. So there is currently in France something uh, called We Want Puppies, basically saying uh, we want to have all synthetic pesticide forbid. 
But why should we make a difference be between what's supposed to be natural and what's synthetic? Because also the natural ones are produced by the same companies that are producing the synthetic ones, just different uh, factories or even the same factories. <laughs> why should we make a difference? Basically, it's the same thing. It just the origin is a bit different, but not so much. And why are the organic farmers using it? Because the idea below organic at first was not to use them, but they are still using it because they can't produce without it. But for me, GM is the best future that can happen to organic farming. Because if you if the plant can defend itself, you don't need pesticide anymore. But if your plant can't defend itself, then you need to put some uh, some pesticide on a field. And if you don't have even the synthetic and efficient one, then you will use a natural one, which are not better for wildlife, but less efficient. So we, you will need to put even more. And finally, you are putting also the same thing, because if a GM plant is able to make the protein of a bacteria, and you just put directly the bacteria, you are putting a living organism that was not here in the wildlife. So you are changing also the equilibrium. So finally, isn't it better that the plant is synthesizing this protein by itself, whereas you put directly the bacteria? So that's basically the point that finally, for me, organic farming is not a good way to go ecologic because it's based on something which is absolutely not scientific, which is that what's coming from nature is better than what we can do ourselves, which is not, basically not true. And the varieties they are using are the same that are used in, in conventional farming, except for GMs which are outside of it. But uh, yeah, so these plants were also going through mutagenesis and in vitro cultivation at some point. It's a way that we can do breeding efficiently. And when we say that we want the farmers to do their own breeding again, farmer doesn't, most farmers doesn't want to do this breeding again. The reason why it was externalized to companies is because it was getting more and more complicated and companies that were devoted to doing that were more efficient than a farmer, which is, has also to check on his field, and do a lot of stuff and has a lot of fields and doesn't have the genetic uh, instruments to do his own breeding by himself. So uh, that's also why companies appear. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. And uh, good luck for, well, for the final stuff. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Good luck to you for your work. Yeah, thanks. This was it. You just heard the whole conversation. How does it compare to the usual half-hour cuts? Do you enjoy the conversations more or do you prefer the podcast to have more density? Let me know on Twitter at SciForProgress or by email info at scienceforprogress.eu. I thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye.